Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Dr. Jesse Northcutt, who taught preaching at Southwestern Seminary, looked at the book of Romans, and he looked at it in all of its grandeur and glory, and he got to Romans 8, and he said that this passage, that this text was perhaps the pinnacle of Paul's message to the Romans. Over the last few weeks, we have looked at different chapters from Romans, and really as we come to chapter 8, I agree with Dr. Northcutt that it's like we're going up on the mountaintop and we're able to kind of look all the way around. We're, we're getting this panoramic view of salvation and God's work. It is a seminal passage for us, I think, as we hear what God would say to us because basically the chapter begins by reminding us that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Now think about that a moment, folks. After the indictment of the first few chapters, recognizing that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, recognizing that none of us could somehow free ourselves from this sin, recognizing that it was only through Jesus Christ and the gospel, the good news, that we were able to receive forgiveness. Paul now says, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. No condemnation that we stand free before Him because of Christ's righteousness and how it has been applied to our hearts and lives, we stand before Him with no condemnation. Why? Because we've been adopted in the family. If you read those first few verses of this chapter, you'll see where we have literally become part of His family. I hope that you'll come back tonight and I'm going to go through those first few verses. I know it's kind of backwards, but I'm going to go through those first few verses of being adopted into the family and recognizing that there's no condemnation. But Paul goes on to say that if we are children of God, we also have an inheritance. In other words, we're looking forward to something better. In verse 17, he had said, if we're children, heirs, that we're joint heirs with Christ. That's what he says. And if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him together. In other words, there is something that God has for us. I don't know about you, but this week as I've watched the news and I've seen so many different things, I've given thanks that there is something better than what we see here on this earth. There's a place of righteousness and justice. There's a place that he has prepared for us. There's an inheritance. I was reminded again this week of that theological phrase that they use. Already, not yet. What does that mean? Well, if you're hearing different people, preachers, professors, others who would speak about this, they would talk about how the kingdom has already come in some sense. We're experiencing the kingdom we're adopted into the family. We know what the kingdom is like, so we experience it now. But in so many ways, it, not, it has not come yet. In other words, we're experiencing the reign of Christ in our hearts and lives, but one day we know that the reign of Christ will be consummated and we will see it. And that is the inheritance that we speak of. So daily we live in this tension of knowing that we have accepted Christ and come into his family, but also knowing that there are injustices, there are tragedies that we see all around us in this world. I want to share with you the unmistakable groanings 
that we experience here in this life. How creation groans. How we as individuals, as believers in particular, how we groan. But also, how the Holy Spirit groans with us. I want you to see this beginning in verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, stop there. Paul basically says, he says, I have calculated the cost analysis. I have decided what is negative and what I'm going to have to pay, the sufferings, but I've also determined what I'm going to receive. Now, listen to me this morning. If you've studied through the book of Romans, you know that salvation does not come through our works. It doesn't even come through our suffering. Salvation itself only comes through Jesus Christ, our faith in Him. So today when I say that we do the cost analysis, we're not saying, oh yeah, I believe that if I work hard enough that I'm going to be saved and those things are going to be good for me in the end. That's not what I'm saying. What Paul is trying to teach here is that, yes, we are believers. Yes, we live in this world. And because of that, our lives will often take the example of our Lord. And just as he suffered, there will be moments where believers themselves suffer. And he says, even though, even though I go through suffering, even though I go through all kinds of issues here in this world, I believe when it's all said and done, I win. I've done the cost analysis. The sufferings, they don't even compare to the glory of what God is going to do within us. I've done all the figuring. Dwight, I've done all the math. And when it all comes out, the glory outweighs the suffering any day. That's what he says. But he recognizes the true suffering. Look in verse 19. He says, For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So what he says is that creation itself is awaiting the revelation of God's children. So get this picture. The word here that creation is expecting, longing, it is the idea that creation is like craning its neck to be able to see. That's the way the word was used. It literally, according to Phillips and his translation, it literally means like creation is standing up on its tiptoes, trying to get a glimpse, just waiting for that moment when God will reveal his children. Now, some of us, we know what it's like, especially those of us who are vertically challenged. We know what it's like trying to look over other people and try to see certain things. We have expectation. You probably don't know this, but I love Disney World. And I say that. Wind Shapers, most all of them know that we take a trip to Disney World, I don't know, too often. As Leslie says, I'm looking at her saying, don't get a trip out of this. Don't try. We love Disney World. And we've been there a few times now. And we always go, we always want to see a certain parade. I mean, Disney can do fireworks and parades like no other, you know? So I take my children. And now, of course, Abigail is about as tall as I am. Hayes is getting there as well. So, you know, they no longer need assistance. My, my younger two, they need a little bit. And... Now, now, we have gotten it down. We know if we sit on a certain corner, eat a certain hot dog at a certain time, 
we can maintain that place. And if somebody comes up and tries to <clears throat> wrestle their way into our place, I have a wife that is not as meek as you think she is, all right? Because <laughs> we want to see that parade. We want to make sure we're there. But we have occasionally gotten there late. And, and basically, I've taken either Rhett or Ainsley and I've put them on my shoulders. Sometimes they would almost stand up, which would basically match the average height of everybody else. <laughs> they would stand up and they would look and they would, they would see the parade come by and they would love it because they wanted to see. I mean, you, you don't want to, you want to see. And what Paul says is that creation itself, now think of this, creation itself is longing to see the revealing of the sons of the children of God. That idea of revealing. The word there is the apocalypse. The unveiling of the... And not just that God is going to bring everything into peace and reconciliation. That's, that's not just what he's talking about here. Notice specifically he says, Creation is ready to see the unveiling of the children of God. He, it's like creation is standing on its tiptoes to see the parade of true believers go by. They want, it wants to see those who have authentically followed him, not the pretenders, but those who have trusted him and believed in him and committed themselves. Creation wants to see that. Why? If you look at this passage, it says, because creation has been subjected to futility. Notice in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Creation itself has experienced the pain of sin. Has experienced the pain of what sin has done. Verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Creation groans. It has been subjected to the consequences of sin. Now, I love to go out into nature. I love to see the beautiful landscape that God has given us. A few weeks ago, I was in Montana. Montana in the summer, it's awesome. At one moment, I felt that God was calling me out there. <laughs> and then I realized it was just... A cool breeze that I felt that was coming through, you know? It was beautiful, though, to see the creation of God. And, and yes, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul, Paul had already said, if you look at creation, creation declares that there is a God. So, I mean, the beauty and the majesty of creation, that in and of itself declares there is a higher being. It's a tremendous sight to see what God has created. My, my in-laws... My father-in-law stopped by Thursday. He was coming back from a high school activities association meeting out in Reno, and he had gone to the Grand Canyon. He, was, he had pictures. He was just showing me. He, wanted me. he said it was just breathtaking. He felt a little bit of a, a tear come down his eye. Listen, you don't know my father-in-law? That's a big deal. I've never seen him cry about anything. I've seen him make other people cry. 
as an assistant principal and principal and superintendent, he made a lot of people cry. But he was just talking about creation and all that it, he had experienced. And it's great, but, but get this. Paul says that even in its majesty and its beauty, it bears the mark of sin. Even in all of its beauty, creation has been impacted by sin. You don't believe me? Go back and look at the book of Genesis. And after the fall of man, what does it say? Cursed is the ground. All of a sudden you have thorns and thistles. You have all these other things. Creation has been impacted by sin. Everything has been radically impacted by sin. There would have been no poisonous plants, no weeds in the garden. There would have been no thorns or no thistles in the garden. We never would have feared names like Katrina or Gustav or Rita or Ike if we had lived in the garden. We never would have heard the sirens going off in the communities to tell us that a tornado was close. We never would have heard the reports of wildfires. We never would have heard that in the garden. You ever thought of that? That even the atmosphere itself, even creation has been impacted by the fall of man. And because of that, creation groans. Creation groans. The word in the original language has given birth to our English word stenosis. Some of you who are in the medical field, you know that idea of the, a stenosis is the idea of a restriction in a certain area. There's pressure being put there. I hope I'm right. Some of you doctors, you're not amening me at all, but I'm out on a limb here working it. <laughs> Nurses, yeah? Whew, man, I feel better about that. A restriction. That's the word that's used there for grown. So get this idea that is used. I know you have to be careful about reading present-day words back in, but if you follow the, the language and the etymology, basically here what it, what it means is that creation is feeling the restriction, the pressure. The word as it is used in the New Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it basically means to be under oppression. So creation, being under oppression, groans. It groans. Not only does it long for that day, but it longs for that day because right now it is groaning with the impact of sin and what sin has done and the futility of that sin. And it says that things are getting worse. Notice here it says, labors with birth pangs together until night. Now, Jesus will use that same type of imagery to talk about the end of the world and how this great apocalypse and unveiling that it will come, but it will come as creation itself experiences more and more difficulty. Just as birth pangs get worse. Many of you have been there some of you ladies who have delivered children, some of you fathers who uh, sat there in ignorance while they delivered children. 
uh, you know that as the birth draws near, the greater the pain. When I was in Baton Rouge, uh, it was almost time for Rhett to be delivered. Leslie had gone to the doctor that morning and to see the doctor. I was up preaching a senior adult revival up around Clinton, Louisiana. I called her after she had seen the doctor and um, I said, hey, is, is Rhett, you know, what, what's, what's going on? She said, well, the doctor says it's close. I said, yeah. How close? She said, oh, very close. So that means you going into the hospital now? No, the insurance won't allow that to happen. Uh, Got to come. Did you tell her we live 30 minutes away from Baton Rouge? Yes, I told her that. I said, what'd she say? Well, she said to tell you that if the baby comes to uh, make sure you hold the baby in a certain position, <laughs> that you take your shoestring and you tie off the umbilical cord. I said, Leslie, you stay right there in the parking garage. I will be there before long. We'll just spend the night there tonight. <laughs> what? What? That evening, I saw her wince. I said, Leslie, are you having contractions? She said, oh, yes. I said, why haven't you told me this? The doctor said this was, well, I was trying to wait. I don't want to have to go. And we're going. We're going now. We got in the truck. We went down airline highway. And uh, the contractions came closer and closer. We got there. There was no epidural because we didn't have time for epidural. We experienced the birth. I mean, we just experienced the true birth at that point. Let me tell you what. It gets worse, all right? It gets worse, the contractions do. This is the picture that's painted of creation. That it's going to get more difficult. Now, I'm not trying to paint just a bleak picture for you, but I'm just saying this is the reality. We understand that things will get more difficult. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul said here. That is the reason creation groans. It is also the reason we groan. Look in verse 23. Not only that, that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what, is, what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We groan. We get to thinking about what God has prepared. About the completion of our adoption, if you want to put it that way. Now listen, listen. I know that I stand saved before Christ. I am in Him. Nothing and no one can take that away. I know who I am in Christ. But just as I mentioned a few weeks ago about how the great Baptist statesman Dr. Herschel Hobbes described salvation. Here Paul gives us the same example. What did Dr. Hobbes say? Dr. Hobbes say, said that we could, we could legitimately and bi biblically speak about how we were saved, how we were being saved, and how we will be saved one day. Because I can tell you, I'm saved. I was saved. Birmingham Ridge Baptist Church. I know that. There's a past tense of it. But I am also being saved every day because I am in His presence and God is working in my life. It's called sanctification, that He's, He's working to form me into the image of His Son. So I am being saved. 
But thanks be to God, one day I will be saved. Be delivered. Fully brought into the image of the Son of the Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul says. Is that we're looking for that ultimate salvation one day. That glorification. But because of where we are and what we do right now and what we experience, we groan. Again, we feel like we're under oppression. We see the things around us. We experience the broken relationships. We see the tragedies. We see the difficulties. And we groan. Perhaps this week, perhaps this week, you have felt your spirit groan. It would be only natural. Just a few minutes ago before I got into the baptistry, a preacher friend of mine here in North Louisiana texted me, texted me a little picture. Had a little girl there talking to Jesus. And she said, Jesus, I don't know what's happening, but these people are tripping out around here. Seems like our world is in chaos and disorder. And we groan. Groan for something that's better. We're grown for that moment when all hatred and hostility has been done away with. We groan for that moment where there is peace and not violence. We groan for that moment where we stand before His presence. We groan. Paul says that for believers living in this world, we will groan. There will be moments of suffering itself that we will experience. But I am reminded what Alan Redpath said. He said, There is no victory without a fight, there is no battle without wounds. But my friends, I know that even though we may be wounded, even though it may be a fight that we feel like we're in, a struggle, I know in the end who holds the victory. I know in the end how I will be victorious through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as Chuck Swindoll said, the greater the groaning, the greater the glory. The more we groan and the more we experience, the more we also know the glory of God and His strength in our lives. Because God has not left us unattended. Look at these last few verses. Because as Paul speaks about creation's groanings, our groanings, he also reminds us that the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. He says... Those of us who have tasted the first fruits of the Spirit, who've already tasted a little bit and want to experience more, he says, verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. He helps in our weaknesses. 
so thankful God didn't leave us alone. But he helps in our weaknesses. That word helps is the same word assist. This last Wednesday night, we talked about Moses and how he had to have assistance. Remember Jethro, his father-in-law, came and said, you need some help. Can't do all this on your own. Well, again, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the same word that's used here, to assist. The only time this word is used in the New Testament describes that exchange between Mary and Martha. Remember when Martha comes and says, hey, I need Mary to come help me. I need assistance. This word is used here to say that the Spirit is the one who assists us. Same idea, John chapter 14. You've heard it? That term that is used for the Holy Spirit, paraclete, or paracletos, means literally the one who is called along beside. The one who is called alongside to help. It's an incredible statement. Remember, as Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, he tells them to wait. And all these, all these people, they're thinking, even earlier, when Jesus had already spoken to the disciples, he, he had talked about how he would have to go away. He had already told them that. And remember, they had said, oh, Jesus, don't leave us. You can't leave us. And, and, and Jesus said something very incredible to me. He said, it is better for me to leave you. What? Jesus, it, it's better that Jesus is not here with us physically? I mean, come on, folks. Jesus, if he were right here, could you imagine? Jesus makes this statement. It is better for me to leave you. And what does he tell us? Because there is another one who will come. The word is another one of the same kind, just like me, that has the same heart, the same purpose to come. John chapter 14. This one, the Holy Spirit. To empower us and to help us in our weaknesses. Because God, he knows better our weaknesses than we know ourselves. The Holy Spirit comes to help us. Notice it says, For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. In other words, when we are so broken and we are so hurt and we don't even know what to say, when the words escape us, when we cannot even formulate our thoughts, God knows our brokenness. He knows our burdens. He knows our heartache. And the Spirit, get this, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. He's not speaking about some other language or tongues. What, what he's saying is, is that the Holy Spirit is there to help us and to groan on our behalf before God. He prays for us. He intercedes. What an act of love. I mean... When people tell you that they're praying for you, that should be an act of love, especially if they really mean it and that's what they're doing. And we've just been told that in the moments when we groan and we experience difficulty and weakness, in those moments, the Holy Spirit himself takes that time to intercede for us. What love. What love. And who better to pray? Because in verse 27 it says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Who better pray for us? Because the Spirit of God knows the heart of God. The Spirit knows the heart of the Father. He knows his will. 
He always has. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit always lived, continues to live in perfect harmony. Same will, same purpose, same heart. So he says the Spirit prays for us. And you can be assured that he's praying for what God's will is for your heart and for me. How incredible is that? Unmistakable groanings. I want to challenge you today. The next time, the next time you hear that siren go off, and Rustin, as you do what you need to do to get to safety, I hope that it'll remind you. I hope that you'll hear the groaning of creation. The next time that you hear the report of a wildfire, that creation is saying, I'm ready to be liberated, and I want to see the parade of true believers. I'm standing on my tip because creation is speaking to us. It is groaning. The next time you're in that quiet moment by yourself, especially after you've experienced difficulty, death or broken relationship, tragedy, the next time you're there, listen very closely and see if you cannot hear the groaning of your heart. Well, it's unmistakable. You can hear it. But I pray that in that brokenness, I pray that in that difficulty, you also just for a moment pause to hear the groaning of the Holy Spirit on your behalf. That unmistakable work of the Holy Spirit that is assisting and praying, interceding, on your behalf, to the Father. Today, so many of us groan. But today we praise because there is something better that God has prepared. And until that revelation, until that unveiling, He has given us the Holy Spirit to encourage us, to fulfill our purpose, as we share the gospel of Christ wherever we go. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning again. Thank you for knowing the word that we need to hear. Thank you for ordaining these moments of our coming together. Not only to experience the fulfillment of relationship, but Lord, to experience your presence in our lives collectively. I pray this morning that those who have, Lord, come of age, those, Lord, that know the sensitivity to sin and your presence, Lord, I pray that today each one of those individuals, that each one has accepted you as Lord and Savior. And that today, they can stand knowing that they're not condemned. And even in the moments of, even in the moments of groaning and challenge, that they would know the assistance of your Spirit. 
God, I pray this morning specifically for our nation, for our communities. And God, help us to realize that the only true hope is in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, make us messengers, make us ambassadors of that love and that salvation. We pray now in Jesus' name.